Well, welcome everyone to this special night at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's already started off special with Mila Ming and our prelude, and Emmy is going to do our postlude. So if you want to wait around for a minute after the benediction, uh, that would be appreciated as well. Our children have been preparing our cherub choir for this night, and we're going to begin uh, the service with them singing for us.
call to worship comes from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. 
I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's stand together and worship God as we sing hymn number 218, Angels from the Realms of Glory. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this evening for the opportunity to hear the voice of babes declare your praise. And we blend our voices with theirs, as well as saints all over the world, and angels and archangels in the heavenly choir, as we offer you praise and honor and glory. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, has come to this earth to sing your praises among the nations, as our psalm said earlier. Lord, would you tune our hearts to sing your praise? Would you be present with us? Would you draw near to us as we draw near to you? Would you be glorified during this hour? And would we leave this place with a song, not only on our 
lips, but in our hearts. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're now going to receive our evening offering, and as we do so, we're going to sing hymn number 223, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks, verses 1 through 4 of 223. Our New Testament reading tonight can be found in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. Before we read it, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity not only to sing your praise, but to hear your word. And we pray that you would use it. In our lives tonight, that you would strengthen our minds, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would edify our spirits, that we would grow in knowledge, but also grow in love for you. So illumine our minds now and our hearts, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. Hear God's word. And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this ends the reading of God's Word. Well, Christmas is a season for singing with our choir concert this past Sunday evening and with our cherub choir 
singing tonight, I thought it might be a good time to kind of just reflect on the church's practice of, of singing. You know, there's a sad country song, uh, originally by, I think, George Jones sang it first. It was called A Picture of Me Without You. Lori Morgan covered it later. It said, imagine a world where no music was playing, and think of a church with nobody praying. And the chorus says, can you picture heaven with no angels singing, or a quiet Sunday morning with no church bells ringing? And that song is sad. It's depressing. Because a world without music, just even think about it, it's a depressing world. Imagine a church with no singing. And I hear the objections to that already. It's like, I can't carry a tune, Pastor. You know, the two, two most common I don't statements that have been made to me uh, in my time in the ministry have been, one, I don't read. And two, I don't sing. <laughs> but God won't have it. He says, hey, he gives you his word, you have to read. And he gives you the psalms, he gives you all these songs, he gives you all these commands. We have to sing. Why is Christianity a singing religion? Why do we sing? Well, the opera singer Katie Catt, which is one of the most interesting names I've ever heard, she said, like a primal scream, singing is instinctual and necessary to our existence as humans. It helps us process emotions and pain and pleasure. It produces joy. Joy in singing comes from endorphins released by pleasure centers and oxytocin, which enhance trust and bonding. Singing can lessen the feelings of loneliness and depression. Singing brings more oxygen into the blood and promotes relaxation. Rick Rubin, who I've been talking about lately because I'm reading a book of his, a great music producer, he talks about how human structures, structures for music, like three to five minute songs with a hook and a chorus can be limiting, but he says to a bird, a song is a very different thing. A bird doesn't prefer a three to five minute format or accept the choruses and the hook, yet the song for the bird is just as sonorous and even more intrinsic to the bird's being. It's an invitation, a warning, a way to connect, a means of survival. See, I disagree with Reuben that singing is more intrinsic to a bird's nature than to a human. We were made to sing. For us, singing can be the same as for a bird. It can be an invitation, a warning, a way to connect, a means of survival. And more importantly, singing is a means of worship. And we were created to worship. What these children were doing up here, it wasn't simply a performance. It was them learning to worship. Singing gets down to the very core of who, who we are as human beings, made to worship God. That's what I want us to see tonight. Because singing relates to, number one, our sin. Secondly, to our souls. And thirdly, to our Savior. Number one, we sing because of our sin. That can seem like an oxymoron, but it's true, and I want to show you this. So if you look at our passage in Ephesians, it's a very striking passage if you read the book all the way through in context. 
And in chapters 1 through 3, the first half of the book, Paul lays out doctrine. He lays out teaching. He lays out, here's who God is. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who the Holy Spirit is. And here's what they've done for us and for our salvation. And then in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 with the, the word, therefore, Paul starts to apply that doctrine to our lives and say, now here's what you do with it. Here's how it's meant to affect you. And so when you get to chapter 5, this chapter is full of negative commands. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. It's just a bunch of don'ts. Paul says, don't be immoral. Don't covet. Don't talk. Uh, don't use crude language and crude joking. Don't be idle. Don't waste time. And then he gives a couple of positives, but they're very vague. He says, imitate God and walk in the light. Then when you get to our passage, he hits this really striking positive. Be filled with the Spirit and sing. Sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. He's saying, stop your sinning. That's the first part of the chapter. And then this part is, start your singing. Stop your sinning. Start your singing. So that begs the question, how can songs help us fight against sin? Well, Paul's answer is that singing, it isn't just something we do. It's a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he compares it, or contrasts it, and really both, to being drunk with wine. It's similar in the sense that alcohol, how does it affect you? It affects the way you see. It affects the way you walk. It affects the way you talk. Well, the Spirit does the same thing for the Christian. He affects the way you see. He affects the way you walk. He affects the way you talk. He exercises control over you. You can't be influenced. You can't come under the influence, we might say, of the Spirit and be the same person, remain the same person. But the difference with consuming alcohol... As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, you know, there's a temptation when we see the term about being filled with the Spirit to think that the Spirit is like a liquid or a force. And He's not. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean like we have an empty tank and a full tank and you've got to pour the Spirit in to get full. Being filled with the Spirit is having a relationship with the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the eternal trinity. And we're meant to come under his influence. We're meant to walk with him. We're meant to commune with him. That's Paul's idea. And it's the Spirit, as we come under his influence, who fights against our sinning through our singing. And he does this continually. Ephesians 5.18, our passage, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. That's a little misleading of a translation. The verb there about being filled is a present continuous verb. Commentators have agreed for years this, the best translation of this would be go on being filled with the Spirit. This is not a one-time thing. This is a continuous thing. As we come together and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're allowing the Spirit to exercise His influence over us. And as we do so, we're being filled with the Spirit. And so this means Paul gives us a means for fighting sin in singing. Singing is sanctifying, but only the right kind of singing. And that leads to point two. So we 
sing now because, not just because of our sin, but because of our souls. Paul doesn't just command us to sing. He does, but that's not all. He commands us to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. The word melody in Greek literally means to pluck a string. It's playing a stringed instrument. So he's saying sing and pluck the strings of your heart to the Lord. Our voice comes out of our mouth, but our heart is our main musical instrument. That's the picture Paul's painting. It's the vibrations of our hearts that lead to the songs that come from our mouths. See, Paul's fighting against what we, off, we have to fight against, especially Presbyterians have to fight against, and that's external worship. External worship. Worship that is worship in appearance, but it doesn't come from, the, from inside of us. It doesn't come from the heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached one of the most dynamic sermons I've ever heard years ago at a big conference. It was just called The Living God. And all he did from that, te- from that phrase, The Living God, is try to remind these hundreds of people at this conference that we serve a living God, a God who is active now, not just a God who was active then, you know, during the Exodus, or during the time when Jesus was on the earth, or when the apostles was on the earth. He's a living God. He's alive now. And so as a result, we have to engage with him now. And so he says, you know, the, the danger that then, back then, the mainline churches faced, the traditional churches, the organs, the robes, the creeds, the confessions, the danger they faced was what, he, what Lloyd-Jones called dead orthodoxy. It's where you make right statements about God, but you don't feel it on the inside. It's orthodox, but it's dead. And the Apostle Paul won't have that. He says it's not enough just to sing. You have to make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Your hearts have to be engaged. Octavius Winslow said that our hymns can act like lullabies for our souls. You know, we sing them, and we feel nostalgic, and maybe we feel good in a sense, but our souls are just withering away and falling asleep to the point that they're almost dead. You know, Matthew 15, 8, Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, they draw near to me with their mouths. They worship me with their lips, but they won't let me anywhere near their hearts. It's like, you can have our songs, but you can't have our hearts. That's what dead religion looks like. You can have our songs, but you can't have our hearts. In order for our singing to be worship, our songs have to come from our hearts. You know, almost anything can become worship if it comes from your heart and is directed toward God. I heard John Piper say that. You know, it's from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul, the apostle, says, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of the Lord. And so Piper says, eating is not worship, But it can become worship if we direct our hearts toward God in it. You know, you have a good meal, uh, it's great, it's not worship. But if you say, if you thank God for that meal, and you mean it from your heart, that meal has become worship. Looking at a sunset is not worship. But it can become worship if we direct our hearts toward God. Reading a novel isn't worship, but it can become worship if we direct our hearts toward God. And the same goes for our singing. You can come to church every Sunday and you can mouth the words 
of some of the greatest hymns, the greatest theology that's ever been written, if it's not coming from your heart, it's nothing. It's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. These people draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. You can sing something like, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. You can sing those songs over and over again. They're just a lullaby. Your soul is sleeping. But they can become worship when we engage our hearts toward God. C.S. Lewis learned this as he became a believer. He has a little book called Reflections on the Psalms. And uh, it's a good book in many ways. It's a problematic book in many ways. I won't digress on that right now. You can ask me afterward if you want to know more about it. But he says that when he was growing up, he hated the book of Psalms because the Psalms had that, this one refrain, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And he's asking himself, is God a megalomaniac? Like, why is he always telling people to praise him? It's like he's needy, as if he needs us to praise him. But then after Lewis became a believer, he came to a realization. He said this, quote, the obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers, praising the countryside. Players, praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. He's saying you want to see a soul that's healthy, you'll see a soul that sings. You know, maybe you've met people in your life, I know one very well, who refuses to enjoy a good meal. It's like you could have the best filet, if you're vegetarian, the best whatever that thing is that you might think, <laughs> roasted broccoli. And you're just thinking, oh, this was divine. Why do we say that? This was divine. It's from God. This is, this is so good. And that person's like, yeah, it was okay. That's a sign of lack of inner health. Lewis is saying the person who praises most is the person who has the most healthy soul. And in our worship, that bleeds over into our music. Healthy souls want to sing. You may not have the healthiest voice in the world. That's okay. If you've got a healthy soul, you'll want to sing praises to God. Let me continue with Lewis. He said, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. You know, you, you hear a good joke, you want to tell it to somebody else. You want them to share in your joy. And, and Lewis is saying, that's what the psalmists are doing. They're saying, look at this God, come share this experience with me. He continues, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. It's that the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate that, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then the soul would be in supreme beatitude. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing, he's saying in glory. Fully to enjoy God is to glorify God. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. In our songs of praise, God is inviting us to glorify him by enjoying him. He's inviting us, as the hymn says, to tune our hearts to sing his praise. Because streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. The health of your soul and your relationship to the Spirit is manifested in your songs. Not the quality of your voice, but the quantity of your desire to sing. That's the kind of singing that kills sin. But how do we get to the point where we want to offer God, not just our voices, but our hearts? Really, where we want to offer Him both our voices and our hearts. That leads to point three. We sing because of our sin, because of our souls, but mostly we sing because of our Savior. Jesus was a singing Savior. And He meant to teach us how to sing. In Mark 14, 26, it says Jesus was together with his disciples, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was at the Passover, when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. It was the night that began his passion, ultimately, where he would be betrayed and arrested and charged with false charges and tried and ultimately crucified, sentenced to death. And in the midst of all that, as he's going to face that, he's singing with his disciples. It's an amazing thing. Jeff Thomas said, at the end of the Passover meal, before the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, they joined with Jesus in singing to one another some psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. While the Apostle John tells us of the mighty prayer which Jesus prayed at the end of the Passover, Mark is struck by the fact that at the end of the Passover, Jesus led the singing of God's praise with his disciples. The Lord Christ is a singing Savior. You don't hear men and women in Islam's mosques singing together with joy. There are no Muslim hymn books. There's not one mention of Muhammad singing. The Quran doesn't forbid singing, though 200 years after it was written, important Islamic writings actually forbade singing. 
making a grim religion even more austere. Did Buddha sing? No. Did our civilization's contemporary prophets, Marx and Darwin and Freud and Bertrand Russell, sing? Does the president sing? Does the Congress sing? No. But the Lord Jesus went to God singing. As he entered the temple of his suffering, he sang. And what did he sing? Well, traditionally, during the Passover, the Jewish people sang the Psalms of Ascent. And so we know some of the words that he sang. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Psalm 116 would have been sung. It starts like this. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. And you get to see Jesus living that out on the cross. Continuing, verse 12 of Psalm 116. It says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You imagine the meaning. You imagine what was coming from his heart when he was singing that words facing his own impending death. One more of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 118, starting in verse 10, says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. And you have to imagine Jesus with those words fresh in his mind on the cross. The nations were surrounding him. But he wasn't cutting them off. Because he was there to be cut off. For us so that we would never be cut off. And on the cross when Jesus quotes from the book of Psalms repeatedly... Jeff Thomas says Jesus was writing his signature at the end of each psalm. He was saying yes and amen to what they say. They're all true, he's saying. And I'm going to prove them. I'm a singing Savior. These psalms are mine. In Romans 15.8, the Apostle Paul quotes from the psalms when he says... I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Verse 9, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul's quoting Psalm 1849, which says, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, or among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. But in Romans 15, he's putting that psalm in the mouth of Jesus. It's Jesus saying, I will praise you, O Lord, among the, among the Gentiles, among the nations, and sing to your name. He's saying, Paul's saying, Christ's message, the gospel, is a song meant to be spread throughout the nations because Jesus is a singing Savior. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing.
We're singing back to God because He's singing to us. His song is reaching our hearts and our hearts are responding back with songs of praise. That's what worship is meant to be. Remember Katie Cat said, like a primal scream, singing is instinctual and necessary to our existence as humans. And it's, it should be instinctual and necessary to our existence as Christians. So we started with how Paul sets our singing in the context of our fight against sin. How can singing help you fight against sin? It helps because it's your heart that God wants in tune with Christ. He wants your singing to go to the very heart of who you are and how you worship. God isn't just after our songs. He's after them, but not just those. He's after our hearts. He wants to change our inner soundtracks. And he wants the gospel to be the deep song of our souls. I mentioned that word earlier when Paul says, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. It can mean plucking a string, but it can also mean finding the right key. It can mean tuning up. He wants you and your heart tuned to the gospel and to the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. And he wants your life to look like a musical. I want my life to look like a musical. You know, I don't really like musicals that much. Um, but I want my life to be, I could just burst out into song at any moment because of what my Savior's done for me. You know, his eyes on the spirit. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. But it's not just when we're happy that we can sing. The Psalms show us we can sing when we're miserable. We can sing when we're just present, when we're just here, when we're just okay. We can sing because we're happy. And not all singing is worship. But our singing can become worship if we direct it toward God. Edmund Clowney has a, has a sermon. I think it was called The Singing Savior. It was very influential on Tim Keller. You can still find it online. I think he uh, preached it in chapel at Westminster Seminary years ago. But he said, you know, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5, what he's doing in Romans 15, is he's recruiting for the cosmic choir. The choir that's singing in all the nations. The choir that's going to sing with the angels. The choir whose director is Jesus. Because he's a singing Savior. Don't you want to be a part of that? A part of that cosmic choir. You know, Katie Catt said that she was bullied a lot as a child. And she found her refuge in singing. She said, I'm not sure when it started, but somewhere along the line I started humming. Constantly. And though it got more and more unwanted attention at first, I could not stop. And eventually the humming turned into singing. And for me, that singing drowned out the world. That's what Christ's singing does. It drowns out the world. And he wants us to be a church who picks up that tune so that our singing can drown out the world. Now, if you ask me what I wanted, I want a singing church. We're a singing church, and I want us to be more of a singing church. And I want our church to be such a singing church that that singing drowns out the world. We've got one more Sunday in Advent, Christmas Eve. It's a good chance to tune up not only our songs, not only the choir, not only the instruments, but to tune up our hearts to sing God's praise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 
again, the songs of babes, praising your name. I thank you that you've given us voices to sing your praises, and I pray that you would tune our hearts now to match the songs that we sing, and the rest of this Advent season would be filled with tidings of comfort and joy, filled with songs of worship and delight and praise, and that you'd cause our hearts to marvel at the birth and the incarnation of our Savior, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, let's close our service by standing together, and we'll sing the last two stanzas, stanzas five and six, of While Shepherds Watch Their Flock, number 200. Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.